This is week number 10, which means this is part number 10, looking at the 10 commandments. And as of last Sunday, we have accumulated five hours thus far in total. This is week number 59, and we are nearing 34 hours. So if you just joined us, where have you been? Please go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I spoke at length last Sunday about Hannah and Elkanah and Penina, three Jewish people, and out of this unholy and unlawful union, young Samuel would be born, and of course would be one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, would oversee the coronation of two kings, Saul and David, of course. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Look at verse 2, please. And he had two wives, in reference to Elkanah, verse 1. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we discussed this at the end of the service last week, and it was suggested that perhaps Hannah was the innocent party, that perhaps Hannah was the first to marry Elkanah. And yes, that is plausible, of course. And because she was unable to produce children, Elkanah decided to take him another wife, which was a very common custom back in the Old Testament. And she, of course, would give Elkanah children, whereas Hannah was still unable to produce children. It was a stigma back in the Old Testament. It's still a stigma today, incidentally. They say that you're not a real woman until you've had children, or you're not a real man until you've been a father. There could be truth in that. But the points I was making from last week is how Hannah, a godly woman in an unhealthy marriage, if you will, having to share a husband with another woman, is still going to be blessed by the Lord. Look at verse 3. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Shiloh, around 47 kilometers outside of Jerusalem, and that was Israel's headquarters, if you will. That was their central place of worship, pre the temple, which, of course, Solomon would build. Solomon, of course, is the son of David. Jesus Christ is the son of David. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost, based on our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or based on our faith on the son of David, if you will. And here it says how this man, verse 3, in reference to Elkanah, a polygamist, an adulterer, went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Jehovah of armies in Shiloh. This man has a relationship with Jehovah. And yet, as we look at him and his wife and his other wife, Penina, verse 2, we find more paradoxes when it comes to understanding what a saved man, a good godly man, would first of all be doing with two wives, have children from both wives, and yet he's worshipping yearly in Shiloh, currently in the West Bank, controlled by the Muslims. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. You've got two priests in the book of First Samuel. You've got uh, Samuel, who was a priest. You've got Eli, who was a priest. Samuel has two sons. Eli has two sons. Has two sons. This is a family affair, if you will, going back to honour thy father and thy mother. And it's always fascinating to me when I read the Old Testament and I see how the Lord's people are portrayed. There's like no holding back. If you think of David, he had a daughter who was raped. If you think of Jacob, he had a daughter who was raped. And you're given all the details. 
very clearly, very vividly in the Old Testament, because that's what people are like. If you are a son of God and you sin, and of course you do sin, we all sin. Even Solomon would say there wasn't a, there wasn't a just man on the earth that uh, doesn't sin and does good on a regular basis. If you are a son of God and you sin, you'll be judged as a son of God. And if you are a daughter, a daughter of God, and you sin, and of course you will sin, we've all sinned, and come short of the glory of God, you'll be judged. And of course you are judged as a child of the Lord, not as a sinner. So he has two wives, first two, and like I say, Hannah may have been the first wife, and because she couldn't produce seed, Elkanah lacked faith, if you will, took a second wife, which was a very common custom back in the day, and of course she would produce children in the plural sense. And on top of that, this man is very religious, he goes up every year to Shiloh to break bread, if you will, to worship the Lord, if you will. He has a relationship with the Lord. He's also known by Eli, the priest, and never once was Elkanah chastised for his adultery never once was he put to death for his adultery and i'll say this that hannah indirectly to be fair to her and to clarify what i said last sunday indirectly was guilty of adultery of course for the record it was very difficult for women in biblical times to seek out a divorce it wasn't impossible but it wasn't particularly easy go to chapter two let's continue looking at hannah first samuel chapter two 1 Samuel chapter 2, look at verse 20, please. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan, which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their own home. So Eli is very involved with Hannah and Elkanah, doesn't want to shun them, doesn't want to say to them, Get out of the tabernacle, you are defiling it, your deeds are unacceptable to the Lord, because again, this was a very common custom going back to Jacob and his four wives and 13 children going back to David and Solomon but here specifically in reference to Hannah and her husband and here Elkanah is also receiving a blessing from Eli 21 and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters and the child Samuel grew before the Lord so she gives Samuel to the Lord she loans him to the Lord which took a great faith it was one thing to say give me a child lord and i'll be happy all of the days of my life but on top of that she said give me a child lord and i'll give my child to you and as a result of the lord hearing her prayer granting her request the child was given to the lord and as a result he blesses her tenfold it's almost like job job goes through some difficult times and very briefly he loses his children his livestock he's in poor health for a long period of time his friends come to console him they sit in silence for seven days and seven nights isn't that what it says seven days and seven nights and i take it to be a literal account i don't want to allegorize it that's the mistake uh, that calvin got into and augustine and luther they would allegorize parts of the bible and as a result miss out on some major events well job stands firm doesn't once curse the lord doesn't once blaspheme the lord his main problem, of course, was self-righteousness, a problem which has never gone away. But, of course, there was a battle going up in the third heaven between the Father, or God Almighty, the triune God, if you will, and Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But at the end, it all came good for Job. And here, it's all coming good for Hannah. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, 
and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So Eli has got a couple of sons. Of course, Eli was very well known, as were his sons, but his sons are notorious. They are known for all of the wrong reasons. And I think of people who preach the gospel today, and they may have maybe two or three children, and it's always very difficult when you preach and you've got maybe two or three children, and your children aren't perhaps saved, the pressure and sometimes a stigma that is put on those men specifically when it comes to unsaved children is immense. You may be surprised. And here Eli's got a couple of wayward sons, and they are sleeping with the women that are assembling at the door of the tabernacle like prostitution. Look at verse 23. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. This is public knowledge. You are humiliating me. You are disgracing me. But more importantly, you are disgracing the Lord. And I am the priest of Israel. And it looks like I can't keep my family in order. I can't control my sons. I mean, imagine having just two sons. You'd hope that one would be decent, wouldn't you? And one, if he wasn't decent, you could probably live with that. But to have only just two sons, just two sons. And they're both wicked is devastating. This reminds me of a story, or not a story, but this reminds me of a conversation that was relayed to me a few years ago concerning a guy in a town not far from here. He's got two sons, and I was told uh, by a friend of this particular chap how one of his sons got into a discussion with his father, and to cut a long story short, he called Jesus Christ a liar. And I said to the friend who told me this, really? And about five minutes later, lo and behold, the man in question came walking up towards me. And I said to him, is it true, brother such and such, that you had a discussion with one of your two sons, and one of your sons called the Lord Jesus Christ a liar? Both of his sons, unsaved of course. He said, yes, that is true. And I said to him, did you chastise him for it? Did you challenge him? Did you reprimand him for it? And he just looked at me, as if to say, what's got to do with you? But more importantly, he looked somewhat sheepish, somewhat embarrassed. And I took from that that he hadn't said it. He hadn't said anything. He allowed his son to blaspheme the Lord. Of course, this guy that I'm thinking about isn't a preacher, isn't a teacher. In some ways, he's a bit of a reprobate. He says he's saved. I don't know. But he's got two sons, both of which are unsaved. And that wasn't bad enough. One of his sons has blasphemed the Lord. This has got around the town that I'm thinking about. And that has also disgraced this father in question. And this father in question, like David and the Absalom incident, didn't deal with it sufficiently. And as a result, I think he temporarily lost his testimony. Look at verse 24. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. This is a family affair. Eli, Hopney, and Phineas, all Jewish men, working in and around Shiloh, like I say, around 47 kilometers away from Jerusalem, the hub of religious activity pre the temple's erection, picturing the church for the body of Christ today. And it's bad enough to have one wayward son, but here Eli, the high priest, or the senior priest, if you will, has got two wayward sons. And on top of that, their sins are public. And it's a major problem, of course, for Eli to deal with. Look at verse 25. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord... Who shall entreat for him, notwithstanding? They hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And of course, verse 25 is a great verse, dealing with the soon arrival of the mediator, 
the man Christ Jesus. He comes between us and the Father. Going back to what I said a few moments ago, when a saved man sins, he is dealt with as a saved son, or a son if you will. And when a saved woman sins, she is judged as a daughter. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our mediator. And here, Eli is probably uh, upset with himself to some extent that he hasn't dealt with this firmly enough. He's let it slide and slip. He's being ridiculed by Israel. He's being put down, and quite rightly so. He's being rebuked. He's being castigated by his own people. And here it says how his sons would not hearken unto the voice of their father, wouldn't take the rebuke. And I was told a story yesterday about uh, Martin Luther King, who got into a spat with his denomination back in the mid-1960s, and he was sleeping with a lot of women. He was using coarse language, and his denomination challenged him, pulled him up on this, and he said, go to hell. A righteous man, apparently, a religious man, apparently, an ordained Southern Baptist minister, and yet I, I heard elsewhere how he would deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't a Trinitarian, and yet today he's pretty much idolized in America. Idolized. They have a national holiday dedicated just to him and for him. And yet he told his congregation where to get off. And of course, once he got the Nobel Peace Prize, he was untouchable. He was something special, as they say. But here, Hopney and Phineas don't want to take the rebuke from Eli. The Lord has marked them out for public destruction. And later on, they would both die via the Lord. And of course, their wives, or one of the wives, was about to give birth. And on that day, there was a battle taking place. They died, both of them. The ark was confiscated. The Philistines got their hands on the ark from memory. And when word got back to Eli, he fell off the wall, heavily overweight, and he broke his neck. And the wives, or the wife, I forget which one it was, was mourning not just the loss of her husband and her brother-in-law, and of course her father-in-law would also die around the same time, but she was also mourning the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. So these verses are fascinating to read, and as far as I'm aware, Eli probably wasn't saved, but I won't say he definitely wasn't saved, I don't know. More likely his sons were not saved, but their infamy, their notoriety is put into the scripture, and this also feeds back into nepotism. We have it today, a lot of members of parliament today hire their wives to be their secretaries, or if you have female members of parliament, they hire their husbands to be their secretaries. I remember some years ago we met, at the time she wasn't quite yet the foreign secretary, and she came to a meeting that uh, Patrick was hosting in central, or south London to be precise, and from memory her husband was her secretary, head of her office, and I remember not long after that we were in correspondence with a Northern Ireland politician to come to London to give a talk that Patrick was hosting. And he was the head of the uh, Democratic Labour Party, from memory. And he hired his sons, plural. He hired his daughter. And he hired his wife as well. I think from memory there were five people working for him. All outs of the public purse. Nepotism. Go to chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. Look at verse 1, please. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Samuel is up in age, about to die, and he's got a couple of sons. And we could suggest this. This is another form of nepotism. And he wants his sons to replace him. This, of course, is how most ministries work. I can think of half a dozen American ministries that are doing just that. You've got the main man 
and he's probably in his 70s now, and he's got sons and grandsons, and of course he wants to continue the legacy. It could be the Grahams, it could be the Swaggets, it could be the Haggies. Just three people that come to my mind, and the Franklins, excuse me, the Grahams, the Haggies, and the Swaggets all want their sons to continue on the legacy. Look at verse 2. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel. We would say Joel today, and of course El at the end of Joel is Elohim. A lot of the Old Testament's uh, greats named their children after God Almighty Elohim. For centuries, Christian parents would name their children after Christian characters in the New Testament, like Peter, James, and John. And even to this day, the most popular name for boys in the UK is still James. I certainly concur with that. Name of the firstborn was Joel. And the name of his second, Abiah, or Abiah. They were judges, leaders in Bathsheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after Luca and took bribes and perverted judgment. Luca, money, filthy Luca. Again, Samuel's got not just one, but two sons. And they're both no good. They're both wicked. I mean, the pain that must have caused Samuel. Samuel was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And here, his sons are not honoring him. Samuel is honouring the father of Israel, being God Almighty. But here his sons are not honouring him. Turning aside after Luca, like bribery, and of course taking bribes, perverting judgments. In the UK, if you pervert judgment, they call that uh, perjury, you go to prison for up to seven years. It's a serious offence. And again, this is in the public. Israel are seeing it, are aware of it. Word is getting around. Look at old Samuel. He's around 80 now. He's got two wayward sons. They don't walk in the steps of their father. Going back to preachers today who are trying to get the gospel out and are serving the Lord. And they've got unsaved family members. And people are critical of that. I remember hearing many times, some years ago, a particular brother who's not very well at the moment. And he was always bragging about how all of his children were saved. Very proud of his children and... Couldn't help but needle others who didn't have saved uh, children. And he was almost not idolizing his uh, children, but really elevating them. My daughters are saved, my sons are saved, etc., etc., etc. And then one day, word got out how one of his daughters, this great saved woman, had met this Hindu man, had a liaison with him, an affair with him, fell pregnant thanks to this Hindu man, contracted HIV from this Hindu man, gave birth to a son, illegitimate son, thanks to her Hindu lover. He died of AIDS, the Hindu lover, maybe a couple of years later, had a so-called Christian burial, very strange affair. And about five or six years ago, I was told from this brother in question, how his daughter has now got AIDS. And I thought, and you still wanna brag about how wonderful your family is? Gotta be careful. Got to be careful when it comes to what you say and what you do. You start to brag about your family and you say, well, I've got a wonderful family. But what do they say? People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. A lot of truth in that. And here this brother, as saved as they come, had a terrible tongue, incidentally. A real malicious tongue, which is what James is all about. One of his daughters is dying of AIDS. Another son has been disowned, uh, if you will. And another one changes her name. But be careful how you promote your family when it comes to the wider community. Look at verse 4. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, you're getting up in years, you'll be dead soon enough. We don't want your sons to replace you. They are as rotten as Eli's sons. We want to have a king to rule over us like the Gentiles do. That's the one thing that the Lord didn't want Israel to do. And yet, due to his permissive will, would allow it to take place. Look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. He's more concerned with their rejection of God leading them. Like one of the wives of Hopney or Phineas. She was more upset how the ark had been confiscated than the death of her husband. And here Samuel, a good godly man, let's be fair to him, has perhaps... I won't say wash his hands of his sons because he wants to make them judges. In fact, he has made them judges. Verse 1 over Israel. Why would you do that? Why would you make your sons judges over Israel when they're rotten to the core? But it says in verse 6 again how this thing displeased Samuel. It grieved him. I bet it did. It's like a kick in the teeth, isn't it? When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. This is another fascinating part of the Old Testament. Israel, God's elect nation, don't want the Father to be their king anymore. Matthew 27. Israel, God's elect nation, don't want Jesus to be their king. Acts chapter 7. Israel, God's elect nation, don't want the Holy Ghost to be their king. Old Testament, they reject the Father. New Testament, they reject the Son. Book of Acts, inter-testimonial period, they reject the Holy Ghost. And yet you are told in the book of Romans how the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Without repentance. And that's why we began this service praying for Israel. Because they are still God's covenant people. But here, they don't want Samuel's seed to replace him. To follow in the line, they are rejecting, if you will, nepotism. And of course, David would also do this. He would appoint his sons in Israel. 9. Now therefore hearken unto their voice. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. It's going to be Saul. And of course, Samuel would, like I say, ordain Saul. He would give him his coronation. He would anoint him king over Israel. The same will be true of King David. And these two Jewish gentlemen are going to be leaders over Israel. And we've spoken many times over the years about Saul. How he began good but ended bad. And Saul of Tarsus would begin bad but end good. And here, poor old Samuel, we could suggest this, that in some ways he was uh, more interested in being a father to Israel than a father to his own sons. That is a common problem in many circles, a lot of church leaders today have been guilty of this. I remember listening to a message given years ago uh, by a particular preacher who's now long dead. And he said he had many regrets when it came to the ministry. And one of his main regrets was that he was traveling all over the world trying to save the world. And his own family were going to hell. Not literally, of course. But his wife was struggling to raise the children. That's why you don't find married men with children being called into the mission fields. You just don't find it. The mission field is for either an unmarried man or an unmarried woman or a couple with no children. 
It's one thing to arrive at a location and become uh, full-time missionaries. Okay, that's fair enough. But if you're already married with children, it's not acceptable for you to be flying overseas and getting involved with local communities, so on and so forth. So I think of Samuel, I think of Samuel trying to do the best he can, struggling, and we could suggest that in some ways he took his eye off the ball, and as a result of taking his eye off the ball, his sons started to backslide, started to go south, and this is a common problem uh, when it comes to those that are preachers, those that uh, teach the gospel, and those that are traveling around. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. So it says from 1 Samuel 8 and 1, how he had two sons, Joel, or Joel and Abiah, and how they were judges, leaders in Bathsheba, but unfortunately they wouldn't walk in his ways, but turn aside after Luca, filthy Luca, the love of money is roots of all evil, took bribes, and on top of that would pervert judgment. Now this is how it should have gone. This is how it should have gone when it came to, first of all, appointing good godly leaders, and secondly, once you had appointed good godly leaders, this is how it should have gone. Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, look at verse 18, if you will. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. There's a very high level set here. It's the same when it comes to public service. In the UK, if you are a member of parliament, you are to declare what you receive. You are allowed to have more than one income, and over the years, there's been moves to stop that. But as of right now, if you are a Conservative member of Parliament, or a Labour member of Parliament, or Liberal Democrats, or any other political party, you can have money coming elsewhere, but you have to declare it. Judges and officers, shout, they'll make thee in all thy gates. Well, of course, somebody has to run the country, obviously. Which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord thy God giveth thee. Maybe Samuel jumped the gun. Maybe Samuel would choose his sons to be leaders and never once consulted the Lord. This is fascinating when we think of Samuel, a great prophet, like I say, saw the enthronement of two kings, and yet he's got a couple of bad apples. Throughout thy tribes, they're going to come from inside of Israel, not outside of Israel. Going back to leadership comes from within a church, not outside of a church. You don't find people in the New Testament advertising for a pastor. Leadership comes from within, not without. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. They're going to be fair, just and honest. Thou shalt not rest a judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. Neither take a gift. Bribery, you see. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. Well, of course. You go back to the 1930s in America. Chicago, to be precise. Capone and co. had all of the leaders in their pockets. From the governor to the mayor, chief of police, attorney general. It would take Elliot Ness several years to break the hold that Capone had on Chicago. People were greedy, filthy lucre. I want this, I want that. And some of those leaders in public office made a lot of money working for Al Capone, a good old Catholic boy. Went to jail, not for murder, not for armed robbery, not for this or that, but for tax evasion. Died of syphilis, terrible disease. It eats your brain away. And he was released, I think a year or so, or just under a year before he died. He lost his mind. But at the height of his power, he was top dog. Even the FBI didn't know what to do with him, how to approach him. 
Thou shalt not rest a judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. This is aimed at Israel, God's elect nation. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live, and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Going back to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. And here, this is how it should have gone. This is how Samuel's sons should have governed Israel, but it wasn't to be. Bit of 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are credentials when it comes to leadership. Not all men are called to be preachers, teachers, deacons or bishops. Most people that I can think of have no business preaching. And I don't say that to be critical or overly nasty towards them. I'm just basing that on my own observation of such people. First Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 1 please. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It's good to be a leader. It's good to be a Bible preacher. It's good to be a Bible teacher. And of course, bishop means an overseer. A bishop, an overseer, an elder, then must be blameless, not sinless. The husband and one wife. And you go back to the Old Testament. Nearly all of the greats had two or three wives. Of course, Elkanah wasn't a bishop, wasn't a leader, wasn't a teacher per se. And as far as I can recall, Samuel only had one wife. Elijah and Elisha didn't have any wives. They were bachelors, if you will. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker. Interesting, no striker. You can't be violent. You can't assault people if you are a preacher. Some years ago, I was thinking about joining a street preaching organization and I read their terms and conditions very carefully, and it said very clearly in their T's and C's that they don't want brawlers or argumentative men joining their uh, ministry, their outreach, their organization. And I thought that's obviously fair enough, because if you get into a fight in public, it dishonors the Lord. And here, an elder in the early church wasn't to be a striker, couldn't get into a fight, had to control his temper, you see. And yet you go back to Samuel, I can think of two or three occasions where he killed people. Cut people's thumbs off, put them into caves, cut people's heads off. He would chastise Saul for not carrying out the orders of the Lord. Go back to the Old Testament, a very bloody book. The Old Testament tells you what God does with nations, whereas the New Testament tells you what he does with people. Not greedy or filthy lucre. And of course Samuel wasn't guilty of filthy lucre, nor was Elisha or Elijah. But patience... Patience is a virtue, not a brawler, not covetous, lusting. Going back to the first and second commandments, if you lust for someone or something, you are guilty of coveting, coveting. And Paul told you from the book of Ephesians, is it 5-5 from memory that somebody who is covetous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now look at verse 4. One that ruleth well his own house. Having his children in subjection with all gravity, like their feet on the ground, like dad is boss, like everything goes via the father. And how many fathers today are bosses in their own homes? For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how do you take care of the church of God? Someone suggests this, that by the New Testament standards, it's fair to say that Samuel probably wouldn't uh, reach the qualifications or the credentials of being a New Testament church leader, and you may think I'm being a little hard on him, but I'm simply trying to show that there is a distinction 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're not a dispensationalist, how in the world do you explain the two dispensations? How in the world do you approach these difficult subjects when it comes to rules in the Old Testament or rules in the New Testament? The simple structure when it comes to honour thy father and mother goes along the lines of this. Children should honour their parents. Parents should honour their employers. Employers should honour the police. The police should honour the government. And the government should honour God. That's what Romans 13, 1 to verse 7 is all about. You were told three or maybe four times, no more than five, in the New Testament to pray for your government. And I watch people online sometimes very crude and coarse and critical of their governments using these very catchy sound bites like the Democrats or the uh, rhino Republicans. But you were told to pray for those people. And yet I don't see many of these preachers praying for those people. If you're an American, you should be praying for your government. If you're an English man or an English woman, a Brit, you should be praying for your government. If you're a Spaniard or a Frenchman or a German, you should be praying for your government. Every day, on your knees. There are problems all over the world today, which I won't get into. But the point I'm trying to make is this. If you look at Eli and his two sons, he allowed his sons to slide. And that's where the term backslide comes from didn't deal with his two sons. And of course, they would publicly disgrace Eli and God Almighty. And yet, in Leviticus chapter 10, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, God Almighty would kill Aaron's sons for offering strange fire. Hannah was indirectly guilty for adultery. I won't say any more than that. It was difficult for women in biblical times to get a divorce from their husbands. Their husbands had the whip hand and even in Orthodox circles today, it's still pretty much the same. And it'll be the same in Islamic circles. If you think of Elkanah, he was an adulterer, had two wives. He wasn't put to death. He wasn't put out of the congregation. He was allowed to continue. And this is the paradox, like I say, when it comes to understanding how God's people work. And God will take someone like Elkanah, someone like Hannah and Penina, three very different women, sister wives and out of that unholy union which the lord would never condone young samuel would be born so one more time i'm going to suggest this that samuel was more of a father to israel than his own sons and as a result of that his sons would slip and slide and publicly disgrace him i won't say he was responsible for all of their sins it's not fair to blame the parents for everything all of the time you're to honor your parents and parents are to honor their children that's what paul told you fathers don't provoke your sons to anger don't tease your sons. Don't embarrass your sons. Don't embarrass your daughters. Don't humiliate your children. It goes both ways. And yet it's very interesting when we think about families, uh, good godly families. I think Samuel was a good godly man. When push came to shove, he wasn't able to control his sons. And his sons weren't put out either. But I sat down maybe two or three weeks ago in preparation for the fifth commandment. And again, this will be uh, the fifth part of the Ten Commandments, and I couldn't find any verse in the Old Testament that would allow Samuel to put his sons to death for what they did. Now, of course, Eli's sons could be put to death for fornication, but Eli overlooked their sins, David overlooked the sins of Absalom, and Samuel overlooked the sins of his sons, and from memory, I can't think if we're even told what happened to his sons. I guess they just disappeared off the face of the earth. So it's very interesting when we think of families in the word of God, how they lived, how they functioned, what they did, and the consequences of what they would do. 
and we are told, like I say, in no uncertain terms uh, what takes place when people are allowed to slip and slide. Go to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, being a preacher, being a teacher, being an elder in a typical church is not easy. Don't think it is. And if you think it is, you try it sometime. You try getting up on your feet and doing a live service. You try it sometime. You try standing up at your open-air pulpits in the dead of winter on your feet for two and a half hours without any notes. Try it sometime. First Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. Almost mirrors the fifth commandment. Honour thy father and mother. Give respect to your parents. And here elders are pictured in a similar light. But here you've got elders in the plural sense. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, double respect, especially for they who labour in the word and doctrine. It takes time to prepare a message. It takes time to plan a sermon. It doesn't just come to you. You have to think these things through. You have to get all the verses laid out. You have to plan what you're going to say. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And the labourer is worthy of his reward. So there's some financial gain, some financial benefit, some financial blessing that the elders, plural, that labour in word and doctrine are entitled to. To suggest a full-time salary or full-time stipend is not found in scripture. That is a second and third century doctrine. But elders in the plurality are entitled to receive gifts to go some way, first of all covering their time, and also to show appreciation and respect. So we'll close it there, looking at the fifth commandment, and we'll come back to this theme when we hit the seventh commandment in probably three weeks' time, looking at adultery. And don't worry, we'll go right through that very carefully, very methodically, and that too isn't as simple as you would think. But I think we will hold it there and return next week, Lord willing.